When we were dating, one of my most important questions to Stephen was, will you come to China with me? So yeah, that's kind of where the story began. My Chinese name is Lu Nuo, basically means faithful to promise. And so we had committed to the business, to build this business with our friends, our colleagues. And so hell or high water, uh, we were committed and so we stayed. So a lot of the focus at the moment is on broadening children's horizons and giving kids more opportunities. I think that's fantastic and much needed. But I would also say that parents and grandparents, they need to be equipped as well because the, the home is the first environment that kids learn in. One of the really important things, um, I say life skills, and, and this particularly you learn from sport, is just the ability to lose um, and to lose well. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. In this episode of our special series, My Expat Life in Rural China, I have a special co-host, my former colleague, Zanella Pearl Guitalezi from South Africa, who's now studying in Ireland. Hi, Pearl. Thank you for joining me from Dublin. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And today we are joined by Pearl's compatriots, Stephen and Ruth Green, who are now living in Daoxian or Dao County, a very small county in central China's Hunan province. Welcome to the chat, Ruth and Stephen. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. First, could you please introduce yourselves a little bit? You are the youngest guests we've had on the show so far. So tell us what brought you to China in the first place, please. Well, I think the story um, begins with me. So in 2008, I came to Beijing with my mom um, to watch the Olympics in China. Um, and I think that was an incredible experience for me. And basically, as soon as I arrived in the country, I just fell in love with the people and the place. Um, and so I knew that I would be coming back to China at some point. Um, fast forward a few years, um, Stephen and I met. Mm -hmm. And by that time, my love for China had grown even more. And I was even more desperate to come back. And mm. um, so when we were dating, one of my most important questions to Stephen was, will you come to China with me? Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where, where the story began. Yeah, so I knew that uh, Ruth was a package deal. So <laughs> right. yeah, I thought about it and I didn't really have any long-term commitments um, in South Africa. So yeah, I resolved that I'd finish up my job and that we'd move to China, the two of us, and um, start our journey there together. Yeah, then coming to China. So we've been here for, it's coming close to six years now. I really fell in love with the people and the place. Yeah, and then and then have built something here with friends. And yeah, I'm invested now in my life in China. Mm. You've enjoyed your stay in China and you've made a lot of friends there? 
<laughs> how many is a lot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to ask. How many friends have you have you made so far in China? Um, so the first city we went to was Guilin,、mm. and we did one year of language study there. Right. And we've got four or five friends. Well, the thing is also because you know some of our friends were students,、um, and then they've moved. So、um, we've got like seven friends,、mm. and、um, five of them are still in Guilin,、um, and then the other two have. They are they're in different cities now.、Mm. Have you met a lot of your compatriots when you stayed in Guilin? Not at all, actually. There were people from Vietnam, Korea, Holland, America, but none.、Oh, also, like Nigeria, I、mm. think some other African countries, but none from South Africa. At least when we were there. Right, but now you you've met、um, Pearl. Like Pearl, many expats choose to live and work in big cities. Like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, or other places with renowned natural landscapes. So, what made you decide to settle down in Daoxian, a less developed county, not even many Chinese have heard of? Yeah, so I come from a business family, and、right. I'm the youngest of four boys. I'm still involved in in my family's business, but it was always going to be my older brothers、um, who took over the business.、Mm. And、um, we got an opportunity, and we were looking around at different um, teaching um, opportunities. And one really caught our attention,、uh, which is was from our now colleagues. They put an advert out, and they said we're looking not for teachers, but we're looking for someone to co-found an English training center.、Mm. And that really caught our attention, and particularly my attention, because I thought, you know. Here's something that I can put my business skills to use, and I can teach English, obviously, but also be part of establishing、um, a business.、Um, so that was one side of it. The other side of it was that we loved their hearts, and they had、um, one of them had studied overseas. They both had been working in Shanghai, and they had decided that they wanted to go back to their city of birth,、um, which is Daoxian, and they wanted to. Uplift their home and make the sacrifices necessary to do that.、Right. Um, so to leave higher-paying jobs, but to I say leave a mark to make an impact to improve life in their hometown.、Mm. So we we really like their heart in that. But Ruth, have you ever had any hesitation when thinking about you had to move from a very well-known city or big city rather to a small county? Yeah, I think to be honest, for me, the smaller places excite me more. Really,、um, I'm a person who likes to explore new places,、mm. and I find that yeah, the the smaller places are full of culture, full of interesting people, and ways of life that we are not familiar with. So in the bigger cities, it's much more international, much more cosmopolitan,、mm. and we're somewhat familiar with that scene already. Um, so for me, the smaller places are much more exciting. Yeah, I I also enjoy the slower pace of life here. You're a brave、so、girl. Big cities, there's lots going on. <laughs> no, I mean there's lots going on in big cities, and it's it's nice to be able to slow down and really take the time to enjoy a place and to really get to know the people. Right. So yeah, that was attractive for me as well. Now I would just would like to know how it was like, you know, adjusting to life in the small town. Or a less developed area such as this one, and what would you think, and what made you think rather that it would support your business、um, ambitions, especially in the education sector in China? 
Yeah, so um, this was all before COVID happened and, and the more recent government policies. So the training center industry w- was flourishing at that time. And, um, but the big city market was somewhat saturated and mm-hmm. like it is in many countries that are developing and particularly China, um, you know, developing faster at that time. The natural tendency is that that has a trickle-down effect to the smaller places. So in terms of business, at the time, at least, I wasn't really worried. Mm. And then the other part of that question is, how was the adjustment? I think one thing that we, I mean, you've got to be the right kind of person for it. Mm. So we really enjoy it, but I can understand how others might find it frustrating. But you get to see the cultural differences a lot more clearly in Mm. a small place. Because for a lot of people in Daoshan, where we are, we're the first foreigners that they've ever seen. Mm, <laughs> so, I can imagine. Um, yeah, so, so like they don't, you know, the, our friends, they wouldn't understand why we do things differently. And they don't actually have an idea that like, okay, different cultures, obviously they know they exist, but there's not actually an understanding like different cultures do things differently. So just an example is we keep getting asked around um, Chinese New Year Spring Festival. Mm. We keep getting asked, oh, are you going home to see your family? Mm. Because that's what you do in China. For New Year's, you go home to see your family. And every time I have to say, well, actually, our culture doesn't have <laughs> Chinese New Year. And a lot of the time people are shocked. They can't believe it. Like, how can people not have Chinese New Year? Um, and so it's, it's things like that that are a lot more obvious in small places and people's reactions um, are a lot more raw. And I think if you've got the right temperament for it, if you are patient and you don't get offended easily, then like for us, it's not been a big deal. Mm. Um, it's kind of it kind of been funny, really. Yeah. Um, and so we've kind of just taken that on our stride. Right. Did you have to overcome some obstacles to better adapt to local life? Yeah, I think um, being in a small place, the language has obviously been quite a challenge for us. Um, so majority of people where we are don't have a lot of experience speaking English. Um, everyone obviously studies English in school, but that's written English and not spoken English. Mm. Yeah, um, it's been difficult to do some everyday things that require um, good explanation in Chinese. Um, so there have been a couple of situations where we've not really known how to handle things because it's required a level of Chinese that we haven't reached yet. Mm. So yeah, language has been difficult. The the other thing that's been difficult and is very much part of um, VR being in rural China is that a lot of the facilities uh, weren't ready for us. So for example, like getting a cell phone card, um, that was not an easy task. And um, changing our bank account information and that was also quite difficult because because our address had changed, so we needed to change information. It wasn't a case of that those the places didn't have the facilities. It was just that they'd never done it before. Right. Um, so actually our colleague, um, the one who'd studied overseas, he had to help us with most of those things. But it was quite funny because often he knew more than the person behind the counter. <laughs> so you have to like go behind and say, okay, no, you need to do this and this and this. Um, so I think if we didn't have him, it would have been very difficult. <laughs> so you, you were like adapting to the local environment and people around you were also trying their best to adapt to us. <laughs> right. But also, uh, I'm curious about this. Um, did your presence or your arrival in the community also increase the interest in people 
in terms of them wanting to maybe learn a, more English? Yeah, definitely. I think it's been a great, so obviously English is part of it and, and there's been interest, but um, the other thing is like, yeah, just wanting to get to know us, to get to know where we come from, what South Africa is like, what the different cultures are like. Yeah, it's been, I think curiosity is a good, is a good word to use. Look, if you're really tired, then sometimes it gets a bit much. But for the most part, we've really enjoyed that. And it's given us an opportunity, you know, if someone's curious about you, you can then return that curiosity and ask all sorts of questions about Chinese culture and things like that. And we found for the most part, people have been very yeah, open and friendly and welcoming towards us. Ruth and Stephen, um, you've already uh, lived in China for six years, right? Yeah. yeah. But for the past three years, there is this uh, COVID pandemic. So have you ever thought about leaving China during the past few years? To be honest, we didn't really consider leaving China. Um, obviously, we really missed our family and our friends, and we wanted to be with them during that difficult time. But we also knew that if we left China, we most likely wouldn't be able to come back in um, because China was closing its borders at the time. Mm. And so, yeah, just because the, this place has become our home and the, the people here have become our community, we wanted to stay um, with people here during the pandemic and also for the sake of our business and our colleagues. So at the time, um, we were the only English teachers in our training center. Mm. And so if we left, um, it would have, the business would have been left in quite a difficult situation. And um, so, yeah, just in commitment to them and to the business, and um, we decided to stay. Yeah, you, and, yeah, and actually quite a few of the other local training centers, English training centers, they actually shut down. Um, so we, we've actually just opened a new branch in where an old English training center was. And so I think part of the business being able to survive was that we actually chose to stay um, and people could mm. see, oh, okay, this business is going to be here for the long run mm. because their teachers are still here. They're not running away. So my Chinese name is Lu No. So the Lu is from Lu Bo, who's a famous Chinese historical figure right. and is known for loyalty to friends. So the first part of my name, Lu, basically means loyal. And then the second part of my name, Nor, is from promise. So my name basically means faithful to promise. I'm the kind of person I want to be faithful to the commitments I've made. And so we had committed to the business, to build this business with our friends, our colleagues. And so hell or high water, uh, we were committed. And so we stayed. That's good. There's a sense of responsibility. And, and so talking about your teaching career in China, what have you been teaching the students in Daoxian? We started off teaching traditional English. Yeah, we enjoyed that. It was good. Um, but as things have progressed and new government policies have been rolled out, we've also seen the need to change our teaching styles a bit and the teaching content. So we recently started a new course that we've called Adventure Club. And basically the idea behind that is to expose kids to a type of learning that is much more practical and fun and creative. So included in that we've had different activities. And um, so far there's been five. And um, we've had ultimate frisbee, first aid, outdoor cooking, knot tying, and woodwork. 
Mm. So a variety of different skills. Um, I think it's been valuable for the kids to be exposed to different types of learning environments. So there's been lots of things like group work, teamwork, leadership, creativity, problem solving. Yeah, that kind of thing. Before the changes came in, what sort of progress impressed you after, you know, your first maybe month or six months of teaching or a year of teaching English to these little ones, the kids? What sort of progress impressed you the most when you see that, um, wow, we are actually doing something? Could be small things, you know, or big things that you notice that, you know, what we are doing here is worthwhile. So, yeah, I think we opened for a year before... COVID happened. So, so that was the big, first big hurdle was, was COVID. You know, what we talked about before in terms of interest level, you know, just interest in different cultures and in English in general, you know, the first year of the business, it's normally a year that's not profitable. So people, they plan, they will normally say, okay, our first year, we're laying foundations, we're not going to make a profit. Mm. But our business really grew fast and our first year was actually profitable which is part of the reason why we were able to survive into the future and, and COVID, yeah. But um, I think the reason that we were profitable was because the interest was so high. You know, yeah, just people being introduced to foreigners increased, like we spoke about earlier, increased their interest level and wanting to know English, of course, but also um, different cultures, different parts of the world. And also our teaching style was... Yeah, it's very different to the the, the normal teaching that that they uh, the traditional they used to. Chinese so, teaching style. Yes, yeah, so, so Ruth and I we both did um, SALTA training, which is a Cambridge-based teaching English as a foreign language mm. course, and um, yeah, so we learned a lot of techniques and and things from those classes that obviously we carried over um, into the business. And I think combination of us being foreigners and doing things in a new way. Um, it really generated a lot of interest and momentum in that first year. So who were the, you know, your, your major clients? How many of them um, in, in the first year? So in the first year, we, we ended up with around 120 students. Wow. Yeah, so pretty decent. What, what was the, your for, uh, original expectation, like half of them? Our goal for the first year was 100 students. But, you know, obviously you set your goal. You make it possible. Right. But you also want to say that high as well. Um, and so I think that we exceeded that goal. Yeah, it was, was really encouraging to us. Um, and then our lessons, we've kind of changed a bit, but we, um, our business philosophy at the beginning was that we offering like a much higher quality of class. And so our class sizes were a lot smaller than usual. Um, and so some people might listen and be like, 120, that's not a lot, but our classes were smaller and more expensive and then other options. Right. Then what would you say uh, was the biggest difference when you compare your teaching style, what they had in, in Daoxian? So a lot of Chinese learning is built up around memorization. So a good example is there's a stereotype and it's, it's got some foundation, but it mm. is that Chinese people are good at maths. And the reason for that is maths, there's a lot of memorization. You know, you memorize formulas yeah. and, and ways of doing things. And so that memorization is quite a focus in Chinese learning, whereas our teaching style is a lot more interactive. And so we'll have games, conversations, problem solving mm -hmm. around the English language. So it's a lot more 
trying to introduce real world scenarios, but also introducing fun ways to use and engage with the English language. You also wrote, wrote songs yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was for kindergarten. Right. Maybe I should release a CD. I don't know. But I found that we would teach a lesson and, and have a bunch of vocabulary. And I could never find a song online that had the exact same vocabulary. So I mm. thought, well, I'm a, a musician and I can write songs. So I'm just going to write kid songs to match the vocabulary from my lessons. And yeah, the result is that I've got a whole bunch of um, English songs that I've written. Time to eat, yum, yum. Time to eat, yum, yum. Time to eat, yum, 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 go. Our teacher, our teacher. You're listening to the chat lounge. We'll be back after this. Why China instead of other countries? Why the village instead of the city? As China's rural revitalization continues, we talk to expats to find out their reasons for choosing to live in the country's villages for years or even decades. They also share their experiences and views on the development and reconstruction of the countryside over the years. Learn more about what's going on in China's vast rural areas through my expat life in rural China, here on Chat Lounge. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're joining Stephen and Ruth Green for their experiences of teaching in what's called a forgotten county in China. Ruth, your unique way of teaching. Yeah, I think one difference that I've observed is that Chinese teaching is much more teacher-focused and our style of teaching is more student-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, students here are very used to listening well to a teacher and the teacher kind of talks for the bulk of the lesson. But in our CELTA training, we had this thing called TTT. What it, it stands, stands for? for teacher talking time. And so our goal in our training was to reduce the TTT as much as possible. Because if the teacher is talking less, it means that the students are talking more. Mm. And so that's one of our goals is to help kids build confidence um, and ability to speak more and um, to use English as much as they can. Mm. Even if they need to insert some Chinese at some points or... If they need to think a little bit longer, that's fine. Mm. Um, but the goal is that they try to speak more. That you said you've already shifted your focus a little bit from, from the language, teaching language, to teaching social science. So we both, in our studies, we've done psychology. And in my previous job, I was working, I was doing a lot of work with schools and involved in counseling and things. Mm. And so a friend of ours in the government, the local government, he knows of our background. So the central government is wanting to 
um, yeah, just improve awareness around social issues and mental health issues. And he asked us to share our thoughts. So we are in the process of just sharing our experiences, some of our contacts and things we have learned with the government department so that they can just use whatever they need to to, to help the, the local schools. And, and we are we are open and free to be used by them in that capacity as well. So in the first uh, couple of years, your focus was on teaching English, the language, right? Yeah, so then uh, COVID happened, but also during that time, the government has shifted its focus away from the, not away from, so the core subjects are still important, mm. but they want training centers and schools to focus more on non-core subjects. So things like science, technology, engineering, art, uh, cultural things, uh, you know, music. So, so before we were more focused on the score English. Now we're doing things like story, mm. uh, cultural experience, conversational English. So we we shifting to to match the government's requirements, but we also think it's a good shift because it broadens children's learning and their understanding. And so we're more than happy to go along with it. Then, yeah. uh, Stephen and Ruth, do you have any difficulties in in adapting to the new? policy, the new orientation? I mean, this all happened around the time COVID happened. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say COVID was much more challenging for us than the policy changes. I think, you know, we've, we've worked with local governments. We've tried to get understanding of what is required of us. There have been some difficulties, but I think because we're a small company, um, we've been adaptable and so have been able to change with the times as it were. I don't want to say it's been easy, but it's been manageable. What about Ruth? What, what was your experience? I know you got similar experiences, but what specifically were on your mind at that time? I mean, I was very encouraged um, by the shift that the government was starting to make mm. because I feel like a more holistic education is something really good to strive for um, for students. And so for me, I was excited and um, that they were wanting to add different types of learning to students' learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yes, we, we've, we've probably had more experience with traditional learning styles and teaching English in a traditional way. So the change in policies did mean that we needed to be a bit more creative as well. Mm. But I think, yeah, that was more of a challenge to rise to as opposed to a difficulty. As Stephen said, we were more than willing to take hold of the challenge mm. um, because we can see that it's beneficial for the students. I mean, having taught kids uh, who are age 12 in China, I do understand why the government took this step because I did experience a lot of like uh, complaints from kids who used to have a lot of extracurricular activities and they would come to our training center in Shanghai very tired from school work, normal school work, as well as other activities that had to they had to do. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a challenge to teach kids who were already fatigued from all those activities. So I'm curious to find out what's the situation in a semi-rural or rural area that's similar to where you are. What did you experience? Did you notice that kids were actually overburdened with these extracurricular activities or tours at home that you also noticed that it was impacting their schoolwork. What, what's the situation there? Yeah, I think there are definitely similarities um, 
in Daoxian to the bigger cities. Mm. I think all parents want to give their kids the best opportunities that they can. Um, and I think that's wonderful. Um, but I think possibly in a smaller city, the drive to kind of expose kids to as much as possible, it is high because people feel like they're already a little bit behind the bigger cities. Mm. And so, yeah, they're wanting to push their kids as much as they can. Um, and I think that's why one of the reasons we were excited to start Adventure Club um, because it was a way for kids to still be learning and still gaining really good life skills, but in an environment that was much less pressured and more fun and creative. Yeah, it's the parents who want to push their kids again. But what about the kids? Are they willing to take that uh, changes? I think um, we found the kids, they, they don't necessarily think about it so much. <laughs> <laughs> they're a lot less philosophical <laughs> they just follow the order forward thinking than the parents so um you know what what we found and from the beginning but it's still true now is that if we can make our lessons fun and engaging mm -hmm. then then the children are happy i would say that's a very big objective for us mm -hmm. is to make our lessons and even more so now it's not school it, so it mustn't feel like school And um, yeah, we want our lessons to be fun and engaging. And so I would say that's the future is um, for training centers is not to provide more of the same thing, but to provide something that is, is different and ultimately is more holistic. Mm. Um, so, you know, not more of the same, but I want to say it trains a different muscle. <laughs> right. No, I was just uh, thinking back to what um, Stephen mentioned about the support that they've received or the good working relationship between um, them as well as the local government in um, setting up their business and also, you know, working in Daoxian. I'm curious as to what kind of uh, support was very valuable to you in order to be able to continue to do your work and last this long in that area. So just in case someone else out there is thinking, oh, you know, it's hard to get into the space and also, you know, work in China in the same line of business as you guys are. I think the, the most important thing and what we've tried to do from the very beginning is to work with the government. Um, so from the get-go, we just did, I mean, it sounds silly, but when we started, um, part of the, the, the reasons for the, the crackdowns that happened was there was a lot of illegal activities happening in training centers, you know, for example, unregistered teachers teaching. And so mm -hmm. from the beginning, we have said we're going to do things legally. Mm -hmm. And that's been a goal for us as a business is that everything is above board, everything is legal. And so because of that, we've been able to have a very open relationship with, with uh, the governments, with the education departments, you know, to say, this is who we are, this is what we're doing. And that has been very well received. Um, and so, yeah, and the, the foreign experts departments in Hunan, they've been very receptive to us and very helpful in terms of um, organizing our visas and registrations and things. Um, and then the local government, I think because we've not had to hide who we are, yeah, we've fostered good relationships with them and just have 
I say just just made ourselves available, just said, you know, this is what we're doing and we've not had to hide anything mm. and this is who we are and we want to, um, you know, and it's just to clarify, it's not only Ruth and I, we, we work with our Chinese partners. So the, the group of us have been very open and saying we want to benefit the community, we want to help the community. And I think just the combination of us following all the requirements and just being willing and available, the local government has seen that and yeah has just responded in a very positive way i think we're probably quite quite refreshing to them because we're, and we're i think it's listening. also encouraging that they trust your expertise so i mean by continuously engaging you now they're looking at this mental health campaign to involve you as well in it so it's very encouraging that they trust the work that you're doing as well mm. as you know your credentials in this space so i i, I think kudos to that yeah, we've been very encouraged by that. That's quite recent, right? Yeah, that's very recent. So I would say our, our shift in focus of teaching came first and then much more recently. Um, mm. You know, just because just they, they knew that we had that experience, they reached out to us and, yeah, just want to know what we can offer. And so we're in the process of doing a presentation about mental health. Mm. Then during your teaching, have, have you found any unique aspects about Chinese students when compared with their peers in South Africa? Are they physically less competitive or mentally, emotionally weaker? Maybe Ruth? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think obviously different countries are exposed to different learning experiences. And so the one difference I would say is that our experience in South Africa, we did have a very holistic education, um, which we're very grateful for. And um, so we had, yeah, things like sport, life skills, and basic time management skills, leadership skills, those type of things. Um, and so, yeah, all of those engage other parts of development um, apart from the intellect. So it includes things like emotional intelligence and social intelligence. Um, and so I think, yeah, one thing that we have noticed um, teaching here in, in this small place in China, is that there is a large focus on intellectual development. Mm. And so when it comes to things like EQ, for example, um, we do find that Chinese kids struggle a bit in this area um, right. because there's not a lot of focus in homes or in schools on things like EQ. Um, so yeah, we've had to deal with some situations in the classroom um, where we needed to have a lot of patience and spend a bit more time helping students navigate those difficult world of emotions. Mm. Maybe you can give yeah. us some a specific example. Yeah, Steve, you can you can give a good one about um, teamwork and winning and losing, maybe. Yeah, I can give I can give a bit of a, a funny one before. <laughs> I think this was a unique case, but I had a, a class of middle school students um, and one of the kids came up to me and he put his foot out to me in front of me and um, he, he was is wasn't able to communicate in English what he wanted. Mm. And I was looking at him and looked his foot. I didn't know what he wanted. And then my colleague who was next to me spoke to him. And then my colleague bent down and tied his shoelace. Right. <laughs> he did not tie his shoelaces. But look, that was a unique case. Um, yeah, so for example, um, around teamwork, one of the really important things, um, I say life skills, and, and this particularly you learn from sport, is just the ability to lose um, and to lose well. Mm. Um, so obviously no one likes losing, but in life you're going to have 
wins and losses. Yes. Um, you know, you're not always going to win at life. You're going to have disappointments. Um, that's just the way things go. And so it's important to learn how to lose. And yeah, just with not having team sports and yeah. It's the, the ability uh, so to deal with the unfavorable situation. Yeah, and, and just the, the ability to deal with the, the emotion, because mm. that's a lot of it is like, is processing emotions or like new emotions. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we've, you know, we'll have like a game and we have to just spend a lot of time with the group that loses mm. <laughs> and be like, there'll be another game. You know, you're not always going to win at life. Mm. Um, try harder for next time. Uh, all of those things because it's, yeah, for a lot of kids, it's their first time experiencing that they've had a challenge and they've lost that mm. challenge. Yeah, that's a very important lesson in, in life. And um, then I bet you have to deal with some um, children left behind when you teach in Daoxian. So what about those children? Are they, you know, mentally or emotionally more fragile than their peers who have their parents around? Mm, I think they, with that group of kids, they're almost two groups within that group. Right. And the one group is becomes a lot more independent. Um, so without their mom and dad around to do things for them, they have to learn to do things by themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we have seen some kids who are extremely independent and quite mature for their age um, in terms of things that they're able to do on their own. Um, but then we also have a lot of kids who we can really see the hole um, that parents have left mm -hmm. um, in their lives. and. So yeah, these kids do need a lot of extra help um, just in dealing with daily things that happen in life. And it, to be honest, it's quite a, a heartbreaking situation for mm. me because yeah, we, we know that parents are so valuable in a family um, and in, in a child's development. So yeah, it's, it's quite sad to see mm. lots of kids then, um, lacking that care and love and teaching that a parent would normally give. Then, or in your daily teaching, would you spare more time for, for such kids? Or Yeah, we would definitely try to. Mm. Um, there's not always opportunity in a lesson that has um, lots of kids to care for. Um, but as much as we can, um, we, do, we do try and make space um, for, for those kids and to help them with um, mm. things that they need help with. And one interesting phenomenon is that um, some left-behind kids, they are more active were physically stronger than those who have parents by their side. Yeah, we have seen that. Um, there's, there's actually one of our um, Adventure Club kids. I think he's maybe grade five or six at the moment. Mm. Um, his parents are working elsewhere. And we recently did a cooperation with a sports center um, where basically we joined with them. They taught the sports side of things and we taught some English amongst that. Um, and this kid, um, who was part of our club, he was fantastic at all of the sporting activities and um, had brilliant hand-eye coordination, brilliant body awareness. Mm. Um, and he was able to complete the circuits much faster and with much greater agility than some of the other kids. Yeah, so um, just to, to clarify for listeners, left behind children refers to children whose parents have gone to seek better employment opportunities in bigger cities. Thanks for that um, clarification. Yeah. And I, I would just say, um, I think there are two groups because I think the reason for that, that trend is that those children are, are looking for 
a way to process their emotions. So, so I think for, for every child who has to deal with and parents being away, there obviously are going to be strong emotions. Mm. And one of the ways that kids process those emotions is to be more active because, you know, sports, it releases endorphins. It helps you to, to process negative emotions, which I would say is, is the, the positive one. The negative one is, you know, with the rise of technology is a lot of those kids end up, um, you know, on cell phones or in front of a TV. Mm. Um, and that's that's where they go to process the, those emotions, mm. um, which is a lot more worrying, I would say. Um, which is also why we want to yeah, offer classes and opportunities for kids to learn to yeah, be more active with their bodies and be exposed to yeah, just good ways to, to process and deal with, with emotions. You're listening to The Child Lounge. We'll be back after this. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are joining Stephen and Ruth Green from South Africa for their teaching experiences in what's called a forgotten county in China. Um, Ruth and Stephen, from your experience, and also you've explained that your new teaching model does also involve guardians and parents, if I'm not mistaken. So how much does that help the left-behind children in the community, do you think? You're correct. We, we have tried to involve parents. Um, and just to take a couple of steps back, you know, as there are different cases with left-behind kids, um, there are also different levels of parental involvement um, in students' lives. And so just as we can often notice, we can see symptoms in, in, in students that that, um, that we can identify, okay, they left behind. We can also often identify involved versus uninvolved parents or um, overbearing versus encouraging parents. And so part of our motivation in getting parents more involved was that we want to let students and parents have fun together to enjoy each other's company um to to communicate well with each other and because these are all things that help parents be um you know be more involved and be more encouraging so that was our, our motivation for involving parents in the lessons which have been a lot of fun actually mm. um, we did um, we played ultimate frisbee and i think that's you know in school we had all sorts of um, sports events and things you know from grade one to grade 12 and there were all sorts of parents on the sidelines cheering for their children but i remember i'll never forget one of the parents cheering on her child for the ultimate frisbee tournament that we had um, she was amazing and it was so much fun um, so that's been really good and really successful. Um, yeah, it, I, I don't know with the left behind kids in those environments. Um, we just have to do our best to include them and to have, yeah, to for us to be there to support them or to have teachers to support them mm. um, and just, yeah, just help them to know that, that they're not alone. 
Um, but also often the, with the left behind kids, they'll their grandparents are looking after them. Yes. Um, and so often the grandparents will be attending those events. Um, and the grandparents are interesting in that, um, you know, a lot of them come from an era where um, education wasn't as readily available. Um, and so they are often at a loss for how to support and help their grandchildren. Um, and so part of what we want to do with those events is to yeah, give the grandparents opportunity to have that good interaction with, with their grandchildren. Um, and then often we, we need to have a conversation with grandparents around what it means to um, encourage and support their grandchildren. Right. Um, and, and what are the right expectations to have um, on their grandchildren? I think that's a big one is like just getting yeah. the expectations right because because they, they didn't have the same experience and opportunities that their grandchildren are now having. As we know that uh, China is carrying out these um, reforms in, in the education sector, if I ask you to provide some um, suggestion for the policymakers, what would you say to them? Maybe, Stephen? Yeah, that, that one's tricky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How tricky? I, I mean, I would just offer encouragement mm. um, and say you're on the right track. Um, you know, so, so the first, first changes that we saw were around broadening the children's um, educational experience and introducing, um, yeah, different, different forms of learning and introducing extracurricular. And then what we're seeing more recently is the, the, the drive to raise awareness and mental health. Mm. So I would say, you know, the policies and everything are all right. And we, we are very encouraged by that. Um, yeah, I mean, my suggestion would be just give more support. <laughs> um, yeah, more support, maybe even more finances to to the, those policies and those initiatives because I think they are the right ones. Mm. And Ruth? Yeah, my, the only thing I would add to that is maybe to also focus a bit more on equipping parents and caregivers. Mm. So a lot of the focus at the moment is on broadening children's horizons and giving kids more opportunities um, and I think that's fantastic and much needed but I would also say that parents and grandparents they need to be equipped as well and mm. um, because yeah the, the home is the first environment that kids learn in and so if grandparents and parents can be equipped with ways to build good communication in families build good habits learn how to train and coach and encourage their children well, I think that would be extremely helpful mm. um, in the long term as well. That's a good one. I think also, yeah, just to, to build a sense of hope for families as well. I think we, we've encountered a lot of people who clearly love their children very much, but they feel like they don't know how to provide good opportunities or how to ensure their children's success. And so I think just being able to give parents and grandparents a sense of hope by equipping them, I think that would also, yeah, it would change a lot and be very helpful. So I would ask whether you have any future plans in China and what would you, con or would you consider rather moving to other bigger cities um, outside or move out of um, Ocean to bigger cities like Shanghai, Shenzhen, or Beijing, or do you have plans to stay there for a long time? And um, yeah, I think our plan is look, we, we don't have plans to move to bigger cities um, because 
Yeah, I think the connections and the community that that we um, we love is is here. Not that we don't enjoy visiting. The coffee in Shanghai is great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think I think we committed. We committed to to where we are. In terms of future plans, we're very excited. Yeah, to work with um, our, our friend and yeah, and just to share our expertise um, around yeah raising awareness for for mental health issues. And yeah, we want to make ourselves available, and yeah, see see where that goes. So, I don't know if it, if I would say future plans um, as much as um, yeah, Maybe just making ourselves available. And, yeah, dream dream maybe is a better word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our dream would be that yeah that we are able to to use yeah our expertise in that area to to help and to to be able to do something new and new and different in, in this community. Yeah, so <laughs> I I think. I agree with everything that Stephen said, and one of one of our dreams is we are quite aware that in some of the villages around us, there are lots of schools that are no longer in use, and um, because kids have moved to study in bigger cities, and so uh, it just seems to me like such a wonderful opportunity to use these schools and maybe turn them into places of family learning. And um, so, yeah, as I said, it's just a dream at this point. Um, but maybe in the future, the government would consider using some of these schools and, and making them a place where families can learn together. And um, yeah, and if, if we could be a part of that or any help along that journey, um, for me, that would be an incredible dream and a privilege. We wish you every success in your future endeavors. Yeah, look forward to seeing fruitful results. One last bit before we let you go. Maybe a last a bit a message to your countrymen? I would say to fellow South Africans and other foreigners who are considering um, living and working in China, I would really encourage you to explore some of the smaller cities. Um, obviously, there are lots of exciting things and, and people and facilities in the bigger cities. But I would challenge you that a lot of those things are familiar to you. and things in the smaller places are much more exciting because they're probably more new to you. And so, yeah, I would encourage you to explore some of the smaller places and come to parts of China where you can build good, deep, lasting friendships because things are slower and people are more curious. Hmm. And so, yeah, come to the small places. We welcome you. Stephen? What, what she said. <laughs> I would just add, um, yeah, if, if you really want to immerse yourself in the culture, that's, it's much easier to do in a small place. Yeah, bigger cities, they have their expat communities and it's, it's easy to just get caught up in the expat community. And before you know it, all your friends are other foreigners. Um, whereas if you go to a small place, um, you, you really need to get to know the, the local people. Um, and so it may be challenging at first with language and culture, but I think in the long run it's worth it because you end up really immersed in the culture. Um, yeah, and mm-hmm. I, th- I think your connections to the, the Chinese people end up actually being stronger um, at the end of it. And Pearl, since yeah. you've left China already, <laughs> last message. It's a temporary situation. I would just say that I agree with what Ruth and Stephen <laughs> have just said. China is a big yeah, country and it's full of wonderful people. 
and many places that are have not been explored by most foreigners. So if, you, if people do have their dream to one day visit China or come and work in China, it would be, I think, a good idea to consider smaller towns um, because most of the smaller towns are not, well, they are developed, let me say that. They are very well developed compared to many other um, places in third world countries. So people should not worry about, you know, not having access to roads or cell phone connections, etc. They can find all those things there. China is a very developed country in many places. So they should just come and explore the country and, um, yeah, like Stephen said, immerse themselves in the culture and uh, learn a bit more about the country and its people and what they know from um, mass media that they consume, you know, what whatever content they, they consume from uh, whatever sources that they have. I mean, first-hand experience counts the most, I think. Indeed. And with that, we wrap up our chat. Thanks to Pearl for co-hosting this show with me. And many thanks to Stephen and Ruth Green for sharing your stories with us. If you have any comments on the topic or the show, please feel free to message us. You can find us on all major podcast platforms or send us an email to radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyin Zane. Thank you for being with us. We'll have more chat next week. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, Stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes. Of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, Mulan said, Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favorite podcasts.